0: Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically based, relationally driven, spirit led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. All right. Well, so um, as we said, we've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount for a while now, um, and that, that means you've had opportunities to, uh, to be struck. By these words, Jesus spoke. So you've probably had different kinds of reactions along the way over the last several months. Um, how many of you would say there's been a time over the last several months, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount and you've been a little confused? Like, wait a second, like, I don't understand. Raise your hand, be proud of that. Jesus' disciples were confused often, so it's all right to be one of those, all right? How many you would say there was a time over the last few months in the Sermon on the Mount when uh, you were cut to the heart? You really felt like these words Jesus spoke got to you in a way that made you uncomfortable, maybe, but also made you realize um, something needed to change? Anybody? Is that you? Oh, yeah, a few more of those hands. How many of you guys felt like there was a time over the last several months when these words just really encouraged you? You left here feeling like, yes, I really needed to hear that. Raise your hand if that's you. All right, a lot more. Okay. And then finally, you know, raise your hand if at some point over the last several months... You felt like the light bulb went off for you in some new way, like you just were enlightened. Anybody? Good. Okay, so a lot of different responses. Now, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after Matthew has given us all these words Jesus spoke, he brings us up to speed on what those sitting with him on that mountain did, how they responded. And so we want to jump back in in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, and find what Matthew wanted us to know about what happened next. So he said, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So how did the the crowd respond? These disciples Jesus had called to him, they were amazed. The other way this word is often translated in our New Testament is astonished. And I like that word better because when you say it, it kind of, it creates... A posture that is in alignment with the word. Think about it. When you say amazed, it's like amazed. When you say astonished, it's astonished. It's like you have to open your mouth to say that just like you would if you heard Jesus say these things. To say, some of the things he's saying are astonishing. Really all he's saying, he's grabbing hold of these words. The people uh, he's sitting with were familiar with. A lot of these Old Testament laws that he's grabbing, he said, you heard that it was said, but I tell you, and they say They're astonished again and again and again. And Jesus is quite literally a different king bringing a different kind of kingdom. And the people are astonished. But more than that, they draw a conclusion. Just like you and I are free to do as we hear these words Jesus has spoken. Their conclusion is, in verse 29, he taught as one who had authority and not like their teachers of the law. Well, this word "authority" is interesting to me. I want to share it with you. This is the Greek word because it's fun to see. It's such fun little letters there. Um, this word is ex, exousia. You say that with me? Exousia sounds cool. So, there's this movie from my childhood, The, the Lion King, where uh, the the, the um, oh the, the the enemies of Mufasa and the lions. What are they? Um, Hyenas, yeah, why can't I think of that word? Thank you, right there for me. The hyenas are are talking about Mufasa and they're saying his name like Mufasa. Mufasa, Mufasa just like to say the name, Mufasa. I feel that way a little bit about exousia. It's like exousia, exousia. It's a cool, cool, fun word to say. You can say it as often as you want today, you have my permission. But I want you to grasp what it means. There are two different words for power in the New Testament. One is dunamis, which is uh, like an explosive power. That's how we get the word Dynamite, okay, um, and then there's this word exousia, which is sometimes translated power, and other times authority. It's about a power that one has because it's been given to them, and they walk in a different way, they lead in a different way, they they have a different kind of essence about them. If you break the word down, it means they've gone out from someone or something, some source of authority, and and they have that authority too, which. Makes sense for Jesus, right? Jesus is more than, a, than just a teacher of the law. He's the king. As he talks about the kingdom, it's not like somebody who has studied history for years and is talking about the Byzantine Empire or the Babylonian. Like this is the king of the kingdom who knows a little bit about what he's saying, right? So as he teaches on the kingdom, he does it as the, the king, and he does it with an authority that these the disciples start to notice. What I think is really important about Matthew's commentary, these two verses, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what I think is interesting about is I think they're kind of a key that unlocks much of the rest of Matthew and gives us perspective on, on, on how we should respond. So with your patience, I want to step through several episodes in the Gospel of Matthew that challenge us to receive King Jesus as an authoritative king. And we're gonna ask some questions about what that looks like. So join me as we don't you know, have to turn the page. As soon as this happens, as soon as these people say, "Wow, he teaches as one with authority," we have an example in uh, Matthew chapter eight. Well, first, we see this leper who comes to Jesus and kneels before him, and Jesus says to the leper, "Be clean." And what happens? The leprosy leaves him. <laughs> you ever tried that at your house? You know, company's coming. And you don't have enough time, you're just like, be clean. (laughs) Nothing happens, right? We can't even say it to our kids, right? Make it clean. It's still dirty. It just doesn't work that way, right? But for Jesus, even leprosy, which has afflicted this man, we don't know how long. He's probably tried many things to be rid of it. But Jesus with two words says, be clean. And because he has that authority of the king, he's made clean. What happens next? I want us to read this. I think it's really powerful. Jesus has an encounter with a centurion. Now, a centurion would be a Roman soldier who's in charge of others, at least 100 men, all right, as a centurion. And when Jesus, um, in verse 5, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west And will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to this centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. The centurion understood something about this authority Jesus carried and about authority in general and how that works. And he could see in Jesus something something great, something different, and trusted that that a healing could happen long distance. He didn't have to walk in the room. He didn't have to be there. He didn't have to recite these words. He didn't have to touch the man or shake him free. He, He could just say it along the road, and it could be like that, that authority. The centurion understood it, and so he he, he depended on Jesus to do that. He trusted Jesus to make it happen. And so it did. We continue reading and Jesus goes on to heal many. He heals Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever. He just dismisses the fever. And then the evening came, the whole town's bringing all these people to him. And it says, Jesus just took their infirmities and he bore their diseases. And then Jesus saw a crowd around her and he explained, look, um, this following me thing is... Isn't easy. He he walks out onto a boat and finds himself in a storm with the other disciples. And and what does he do? Well, what do we do in a storm? You hide. You wait it out. No, Jesus just dismisses the storm, rebukes the wind and the waves. This authority has the disciples asking the question, "What kind of man is this?" Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then this happens. Um, in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. And some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Let <laughs> this Some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has exousia on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such exousia to men. And now they're starting to draw a conclusion. You know, this, this might be more than just a rabbi or a teacher, this, this is different. God's given this guy an authority that, wow. It's amazing. You know, it's interesting, just a quick aside. You know, the ancients, they looked at these four Gospels that we have, and they, they were looking throughout Scripture and trying to understand why there were four. And they found a, this, this prophecy in Ezekiel where there's a, there's a four-faced creature. And f- the four different faces, the first is a, is a human face, but there's also the face of a lion, there's the face of an eagle, there's the face of an ox. And the ancients came to understand that was the four faces of the Gospels that we have. You know, the lion is the gospel of Mark. If you notice, if you should read through Mark. Jesus is bounding around. Immediately, he's doing it. Immediately, 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 he's doing all these things. And, uh, you know, Luke is the, the face of an ox. It's this one who, who is that beast of burden and who is intent on finding those who need his help most. He's, he's got this heart for the, the marginalized, the downcast. And he's always taking from them their burdens. And then you've got uh, John's gospel, this eagle that sees from a very different perspective, a heightened perspective, not what everybody else sees. It's a different view altogether. But you have in Matthew's gospel, the the face of a man. And as these people gather around Jesus are watching him do this and speak with authority and live with authority and love with authority and heal with authority, they're, they're asking the question, they're coming to the conclusion, well, this man is different. And they praise God for giving such authority to men. Exesia. What happens next in, in Matthew chapter 10 is pretty amazing too because this man decides to get other men in on the, the game. And in verse 1, Jesus called the 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. We get the names of all the disciples. And then in verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Jesus' names. Some really demonstrative actions he wants them to do. But notice, Jesus has done every single one of these things leading up to this moment. And as he decides to share with them his ecstasy, they've been watching. They've been in the crowd amazed at what Jesus is doing, but now Jesus says, your turn. I'm giving you my ecstasy, my authority. Go. Well, we know what happens. He gives them a few other instructions, but they go out and they, they do this. They, they see this happen. They return victoriously. And it's a new day in the kingdom of God. We fast forward to the end of Matthew's gospel just before Jesus goes to the cross. In Matthew chapter 21, we we get a look at a a really important exchange between the religious authorities of the day and this, this upstart rabbi that's generated a following. This is in Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. Jesus entered the temple courts And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what, exousia, are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this, exousia? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where'd it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? So they huddled. They discussed it among themselves and said, okay, so if we say from heaven, he's going to ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, you know, we're afraid of the people. They all hold John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what ecstasy I am doing these things. You know, this moment happens when the, the chief leaders, the chief authorities of, of the people, of the Jewish people of this day, are in a showdown with Jesus. And they're at the temple, this, this holy place, and they hit Jesus with a question. I mean, they're ready to get him. Uh, who do you think you are, is essentially the question. By what authority are you doing these things? You say, okay, I'll tell you as soon as you answer my question. And they display their lack of authority in the moment, right? Their, their lack of ecstasy, because they can't, they're so torn. Well, how do we, how do, we do this? We're gonna either admit some fault here because we didn't receive it from heaven or the people are gonna hate us because they love John and they can't muster the courage or the authority to speak the truth. The truth Jesus has been speaking all along as he's been declaring this upside down kingdom, saying things that make people really angry, other things that cut them to the heart, things that make them perplexed. We just testify to that reality in this room. And Jesus is teaching as one with authority. He's also living and loving and serving and leading as one with authority, with ecstasy. You know, there's a class at Harvard called Authority. And Kim Leary and Ronald Heifetz uh, teach it. And they use this, this image to explain how as humans we relate to Authority. And I want to share it with you. We, uh, the idea is, this kind of this binary understanding that we're either allergic to it or we admire it, right? Uh, they argue there's, there's more places on the continuum than just allergic. or. But I think you can, you can identify with this. Have you ever been allergic to authority? Maybe at a stage in your life around 15 to 19 in there somewhere? Or maybe now, for some of us who will be honest. You know, that's that, that reaction you have when there's authority in the room or in your life and you just have a visceral reaction to it. You're like, no. And it's not that, that you don't recognize there's someone in the room trying to tell you what to do. You get that. You just wanna do exactly the opposite. You wanna have a, that's living allergic to authority. But There's also those on the other side of the continuum that, that really and truly admire authority. They respect and honor and appreciate authority. The reality is we all live along that continuum and, and somewhere in between. You can see this in the stories we just read, I think. Think back to, to the stories we just read. For example, the centurion. He comes to Jesus. He recognizes Jesus' authority. And what does he do? He, he admires it. He understands it. He admires it. And he ultimately depends on it. Uh, Jesus is the answer for his slave at home who's sick. And so the centurion lives at can you put it back up there before we go. Yeah, at this, this end, with admiration and dependence. Um, what about the friends of the paralytic who bring Jesus? We don't hear them say anything about what they think of Jesus, but they're clearly partnering with this authority that's come to town. It's just stepped, off the, just stepped off the boat, and they have their friend ready and waiting. They've done their part. They've brought him, and they're looking to Jesus to do the rest. What about the teachers of the law who were there that day? Well, they quickly protest in their hearts. They don't say it out loud, but Jesus knows their hearts. They're saying, who does this guy think he's, he's blaspheming? They're protesting this new authority. What about the disciples? Well, I think as we read those moments, we can see the disciples are all along this continuum. First, they're partnering with Jesus when he says, follow me, and they say, okay. And they leave their boats or their tax collector's booth. And they follow him, but they begin to learn from him. They're listening, they're learning from him at the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere. uh, They're complying with his demands. Even when he says something so ridiculous as, hey, go grab that donkey that's not ours and just bring it. But they comply. They depend on Jesus and on his authority and on the authority he's sharing with them as they do the work, he's asking that they comply. The disciples are They're relating to this authority in a way that's open and receptive. Um, Certainly, they're admiring, and they're even worshiping him. And they're teaching us what it looks like to really respond to this authoritative king. Teachers of the law, we just read about in the end, they, they question this authority. And then they ultimately rebel against him. And even go to war with him to put him on a cross. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to step back into these stories and look at Jesus and these, these men, these women who are, who are responding to him, relating to his authority. But a, but a better question today is, where are you on this continuum? How are you relating to King Jesus, this authoritative king? Let me tell you honestly, Whether you admire and honor him as king doesn't change the fact he is king. But you have a choice to make, just like everybody else did. As they heard these words of the Sermon on the Mount, like we've sat with for the last six months, what now? Like What what do we do now? If you've been amazed, perplexed, confused, whatever you've been, this question is still here for you. What do we do with this king who clearly has authority? How do we relate to him? Humanity has a long history of uh, really struggling to recognize and then honor authority. I want us to to step back in the Old Testament for a minute and grab hold of a story I think is especially helpful for us this morning. Um, In the time of the judges, this is um, after... The, the people of God had entered the promised land. You know, Moses already did his, his let my people go thing and the 10 commandments have been given and uh, he, he stays behind, but, but Joshua leads the people into the promised land. They're, they're in conquest. They, they moved in, they settled in, but it's not a perfect life. They're struggling and they're actually, honestly, they're, they're being distracted by the things other people around them have, even other gods. They're noticing maybe, oh, that town over there, they had a really great harvest. Who do they worship? Let, let's, let's worship that God a little bit and see if our harvest can, can increase. Or they're, they're starting to deny God the honor, the allegiance he deserves. And so they're starting to, to experiment with others. And they, they're starting to clamor for a king. They really, they want a king. Everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? And this is, this is ongoing well, the story of the judges is this, this cycle where the people of God, they lose their focus. They give their allegiance to something else. They, they fall into a little, really miserable existence, and then they cry out, and God comes back, and he, this is happening again and again and again. And in Judges chapter 9, um, Gideon has just played the role of judge, and he's, he's built a family, and, and as he passes away, there are 70 sons um, he's had. That, um, that are now in position to lead the people of God. Because, you know, after the king or the judge is gone, we just assume, you know, well, his family can keep leading. But one of the sons, the son of a slave girl that uh, Gideon had, had a child with, decides, now this arrangement's not working for me. So he lures all of the other sons, all of his brothers, half-brothers, to a place and executes them all. And there's just one that survives. His name's Jotham. And Jotham uh, has some words for the people who are partnering with Abimelech in doing this. And uh, and the words are are poignant. They're powerful. I want us to to sit with them for a moment. So this is in Judges chapter 9. Starting in verse... uh, Let's see. Where are we? Uh, Well, We're in the verse that starts with when Jotham. Um, So uh, let's go to... Verse, hold on, 7, 7, good, okay, good job. All right, Judges 9, verse 7, this is what it says. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up to the top of Mount Gerizim, and he shouted to them, listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves, and they said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give, give up my oil? By which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees. Next, the trees said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Well, then the trees said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? Well, finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. And the thornbush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. And Jotham went on, have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam or Gideon and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today, you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is related to you. So have you acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today? If you have... May Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Bethmelo. And let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Bethmelo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled. <laughs> you know, Jotham raised his voice to communicate a profound reality. And I know we're going way back. But we don't have to look far to identify with this reality, do we? You understand what's going on? We all have choices we make, right? We all struggle, again, to recognize authority and then honor authority in our lives in a way that God's called us to. The reality is there is no one, no thing on the earth better equipped to be king in your life than Jesus We substitute a great many things, and we go clamoring around looking for anything, right? Sometimes it's a substance that we decide is going to be the king over our life, right? Um, Or some kind of pleasure, right? Sometimes it's a person that we put on a pedestal they don't deserve and weren't built for. At least the trees have the good sense to say, hey, no, i got a different gig. I don't need to be your king. And Sometimes humans don't. And we run to those opportunities to hold a place in somebody's life we shouldn't hold. And we do the same in putting people there. The reality is, Jesus was more than a rabbi. He was more than a teacher or a traveling preacher. This guy who couldn't stop talking about the kingdom, he's the king. And after being astonished or amazed by what he has to say, We have a decision to make, just like the citizens of Shechem and Beth did. Who deserves to rule us? Who's worthy of that kind of attention, that kind of worship, that kind of life? King Jesus has come to set us free from the idolatry, from the, the indebtedness, the the foolish allegiance we have pledged to other things and other people. At the same time, he said, no, no, follow me. You know, I, I wonder, what do you do with Jesus? I don't mean that, um, I really don't mean that um, hypothetically. I mean that in reality. What do you do with them? What do you do with Jesus? Hey, look back over your last week. What did you do with Jesus? Can you say you literally did anything? Like, okay, so I had some projects this week that were really heavy that I had to finish for school. And so I did some of those with Jesus because I was like, I came to the end of myself and I was like, oh Lord, and y'all are laughing. I wasn't laughing at times. I was like under the weight of it all. At the end of myself, and like a song we, we sang earlier, I can't remember the exact words now, but um, but I I just felt like, Lord, I, I need you. Okay. this is I'm inviting you. I want to do this with you. Well, how about you? What didn't you really do with Jesus this week? And as you did that, did you do it with the heart of a man or a woman who recognizes him for, for who he really is? I think it's worth asking the question and wrestling with it. We didn't just walk through the Sermon on the Mount because we needed to. I don't know, kind of hear some words that... Uh, we ran out of other things to preach, so we came back to the sermon. No, these words from the king are important for the life we're all called to live with this king. So there was a question Jotham courageously asked the people of Shechem and Beth Milo, and I want to put it to you today. The question was, have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king. Well, pull Abimelech out of that sentence for a second and sit with it. And think about your life and what it's looked like this week. And who you, you've given your allegiance to. And think about Jesus, who he is, what he's offered, who he wants to be in your life. And ask yourself the question, have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Jesus king? You know, have a choice to make. Maybe you recognize how amazing, and maybe you're astounded by Jesus, but have you chosen to make him king? We put feet to our faith in a lot of ways, right? And I'm going to give you two suggestions right now that help you do that practically before we stand up and worship together. The first, um, Pastor Pete recommended this a few weeks ago. Whether you're with us or not, I, I want to remind you. Pete said he's developed this habit Every morning when he wakes up, before his feet touch the ground next to his bed, he grabs hold of this prayer, this kingdom prayer, and he prays it. Uh, And you know, you can modify it in this way to really make it work in, in a powerful way every morning, I think. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. I've started following in, in Pete's footsteps, doing that daily. And man, it it does something for me. It has set me on a path that is truly a life walking with Jesus as my King. So I encourage you to try that. Just so a one practical step you can make. A second thing you can do is to make it your mission to withhold nothing from Jesus. Now, understand, we live on a continuum, right? And nothing is a whole lot of everything. But face-to-face with this king, who's so astonishing, so amazing, who carries such authority, it's a call to all, every one of us, but also a call to surrender all. Is he worthy of that? This next song we're gonna sing is an invitation to say exactly that. Lord, you are worthy of it all. If you, could, if you can mean it, sing it. Give God the, the honor he deserves as our king. And I'll meet you with one more challenge before we go. Let's stand and worship together. Is he worthy of it all? Now, we don't answer that or like here in this auditorium on a Sunday morning. We answer that with the way we live. The decisions we make, the time we manage, so the challenge for you right now is to leave and live that. Yeah, he's worthy of it all. I was I singing, was I was convicted to fill in the blank. All my what? Like all my time? Like all my wealth? All my children? I have a lot of kids. I have five kids. All my gifts. All my knowledge. All my, is he really worthy of it all? I wanna challenge you to fill in the blank this week. Intentionally get and sit down and start writing that in. Like, what am I withholding? Here's a really cool thing about Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew. It's clear. He came and he called people to leave it all, to follow him, to count nothing else as important in their life as he was and what he had to say. But what is really cool is as they emptied themselves in their lives, he filled them up, and even decided to give them his authority. The last words that he speaks to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew are just as important. It's the last time we see the word exousia show up in the Gospel of Matthew. These are the words. All exousia, all authority in heaven on earth has, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always the very end of the age traditionally we've called that the the great commission but i i I like calling it the all consuming commission because the word all just keeps showing up how much authority all of it which nations all of them how much of what you taught us should we teach others? all of it and are you really going to be with us you know at least most of the time all the time all 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 the call he's placed on our lives to give him all is a call he's answered to. He withheld nothing. And he asks for the same from us, and that's life in the kingdom. So I wanna pray a blessing over you, the blessing we share with you every Sunday. And we encourage you to think about coming forward and meet with our prayer team if you need prayers to really surrender all or really give him the allegiance he deserves. We want to pray with you for that. This is the blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his countenance to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come pray or go with God. Amen.